Why do you worship God? Why do you worship God? Is it because of his work in your life? You can recall past times of his faithfulness in the midst of a harrowing personal tragedy that you endured, a time of confusion or time of, of great danger that you can look back on and say, the Lord worked in that. It's a good reason to worship God. Is it because you reflect upon his love and his grace and you look at your life today and you say, apart from the love and the kindness of God, I would not have the, the, the tangible, evident blessings, the peace that my heart feels, if not for His grace. It's a good reason to worship God. Perhaps you look at the salvation that you have received. You look at Jesus' life, His death, His resurrection, and you look at Him and you, you, uh, you, you are struck by the fact that Christ has borne your sins on His cross. And all you know is grace. That's a good reason to worship God. But what about worshiping Him solely for who He is? Now obviously, I, you cannot detach or divorce these things that I've just referenced from what we're going to see in Psalm 99. But what I want to hold out before you is that sometimes we worship God for perfectly understandable reasons, and yet we can subtly miss a significant, central reason that His Word calls us to worship Him. And that is simply because He is God, and we are not. He is great in holiness and in justice. He rules rightly over His world. And that enough is reason for His people to worship. What Psalm 99 shows us, I believe, and what we would be wise to take to heart as we spend time in His Word this morning, is that the Lord reigns in holiness and justice, and He is worthy of all worship. Let me say that again. The Lord reigns in holiness and justice, and He is worthy of all worship. I invite you to follow along as I read Psalm 99. Everything I'm going to say that comes after I read this text is going to be in an effort to bring this text to bear upon us. So make no mistake, the most important thing that you will hear come out of my mouth is what I'm about to say. I'm not saying tune out after we read the text, but let us hear God's Word. Psalm 99, beginning in verse 1. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He ex is, excuse me, He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. 
Holy is He. The King in His might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at His footstool. Holy is He. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. This ends the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, and good word to us. May He write its truths on our hearts. Three ways that we make our way through this text. First, verses 1 through 5, we see that God reigns. God reigns. If you look just right at the outset, we observe God's greatness as well as the earth's place of, of, of total submission under Him. In fact, as that which is reliant upon him that he has created. Verse 1, the Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. You get the idea here. But if we're honest, this seems kind of off in regards to our conceptions of God today, and definitely in regards to our hearts or our reactions to God and his word. Seems so often compared with human experience. Perhaps when you think of God, perhaps when you pray even, you struggle to not think of God as kind of this Gandalf figure in the sky that maybe you have to pray extra, extra hard, perhaps with a little added volume because he's getting up there in age and you want him to lock in, you want him to hear, and sometimes it seems as if he doesn't. What Psalm 99 shows us is that the Lord reigns. Or, maybe you don't have trouble with the Lord reigning, but another place where you just have a hard time bending your mind around and understanding it is when you consider the fact that the earth trembles before Him. Peoples quake before Him. Or people tremble, the earth quakes, excuse me. We're not the type that easily, readily tremble before God. If we're honest, we can develop in our minds pictures of reasons why maybe He's not actually due all the worship that you hear He's due in church or that you see His Word argues that He's due. Perhaps even this morning, you can call to mind a list of areas in your life where you say, you know, I... I know God loves me, but if I'm honest, I have a hard time with these different things that have maybe unfolded in my life or that I see in the world, 
And, and that causes me not so much to tremble before him, but to wonder before him, Lord, I would like to ask you some questions. And yet, Psalm 99 holds before us the Lord, as verse 3 says, his, He is holy. Verse 4, the King in His might, He loves justice. These themes of holiness and justice that we oftentimes perhaps don't think of as initiating or starting our worship of God, these themes of holiness and justice actually stand before us as what I believe show us as, as, as when rightly understood a proper motivation for the worship of God. When you think of the holiness of God, I don't know what you think of. Maybe you think of, of His um, unhappiness or inability to have a good time. When you think of people who are, who are committed to holiness, to growing in holiness, you might think of somebody who's so serious about dotting all their I's, crossing all their T's in their personal conduct that it's hard for them to unwind. It's hard for them to, to, to smile, to laugh. And that might be what we ascribe to God. But what this passage actually shows us is that God's holiness is our great need. His justice speaks of his holiness applied in the world. If holiness is God's moral, absolute rightness over all of his creation, if you're familiar with the story from Isaiah 6, where Isaiah is given this opportunity to enter into the throne room of God, I encourage you, if you're not familiar with this story, make note of it and go read it, this brief account, later today at some point. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, is given this opportunity to enter into the throne room of God, and he sees uh, these angelic, these supernatural beings flying around the throne room. He sees God whose glory fills the room. Can't even see God. He can just see His glory. And, and what does he hear is being pronounced over and over and over again. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. So God with no moral imperfections or impurities. God with no, nothing that blemishes His character. But perfect holiness and righteousness. He reigns over His creation and His holiness applied is justice. In our world that cries out for, that yearns for justice, you recognize that in one sense, our world is crying out for and yearning for the holiness of God. The problem is that in our sinful fallen state, we oftentimes mis mistake or misunderstand or misapply our conceptions of justice. And yet we should see that where justice is rightly administered, we should rejoice. But what Psalm 99 shows us is a king who reigns and who will come to reign. And he is holy and will establish justice. Now, interestingly, there are a couple of places referenced here where the holiness and justice of God are first exhibited, are first evidenced in the world. You see, verse 2, the Lord is great in Zion. 
the end of verse 4, his righteousness in Jacob is mentioned. This is amongst the people of God. Amongst those who have come to God by faith, they are a society that exhibits the holiness and justice of God. And now let me share with you a little bit of why we need the holiness of God at the forefront of our mind, the perfect reign of God over us. There is no doubt as to his glory. There is no doubt as to his power and why this is a good thing for you and for I, you and me. Early Christians, way back, think right after the events of the New Testament. They're living in the Roman Empire, and the Roman authorities were just absolutely brutal towards Christians and towards Christianity. They would hunt down Christians, they would break up churches, persecute Christians, even to the point of death in many cases. These early Christians would start to, they, they had a way that they would greet one another, whether when entering church services or when passing one another on the street, when going to one another's homes to spend time together. A very common greeting amongst the early church in Rome that was brutal in its treatment of Christians, a very common greeting was, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. This was applying Psalm 99 to their circumstances because what they were saying to one another, what they were reminding one another of is the fact that, okay, life in this world might be incredibly difficult for us because we are followers of Christ. That's what they were saying. And yet they were saying, Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord and he reigns over us now and he will reign over us for eternity. There are worse ways for us to greet one another, brothers and sisters. There are worse ways than Jesus is Lord. Maybe try that later whenever you run into a fellow church member someday. But beyond that, beyond how you greet one another, may we be reminded that the Lord reigns, that Jesus is Lord. And that will change how you are able to begin to process whatever may come your way. So Jesus is Lord. And yet what this passage also exhorts us to see is that as God lifts high His holiness and the fact that He reigns with perfect justice over this world, then this must influence how we as the people of God, how we as the church, understand and go about our business in this world. We cannot encounter the holiness of God and be unchanged or unmoved in our attitudes or in our conduct or in our treatment of others. Those who recognize that God reigns in holiness over His creation will hopefully exhibit a humility that cannot be explained otherwise. Do you need to grow in your humility, perhaps in your marriage? Or perhaps in relationship with a coworker that you have a difficult time with? Or perhaps you always feel a sense of needing to measure up, needing to, needing to, 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 to make sure that you pass muster with those that you try to or want to impress in your life. 
you need reminders of the holiness of God. The holiness of God shows us that He is exalted and that we are not. When you dwell upon the holiness of God, you then begin to see ways in which we have to grow. And seeing our need for growth is not a bad thing, but it is a thing that by His grace He humbles us in, and then by His mercy He begins to grow us in beholding and being transformed by Him and who He is. So the holiness of God stands before us as one of the great correctives upon our hearts that we so desperately need. Does that make sense? Now then also the justice of God If we are going to talk about how the king in his might loves justice, the church that worships the king, the citizens of the kingdom must be a people who pursue justice. Believers have a responsibility to be voices for the voiceless, for the oppressed, for the marginalized. We must see the responsibility that we have to pursue justice in our world, in our relationships, in our interactions with those who need it. Now there's a danger here when we talk about the holiness and justice of God and we see that God reigns. And here's a danger that is uncomfortable to address, uncomfortable to... um, think about, yet it's something I had to think about even this week as I prepared this sermon, and that is that as Christians, sometimes we can want to and we can talk about the love of God, the grace of God, the ways in which He has, he has atoned for and addressed our sins, which is all absolutely true. And yet, if we emphasize the grace of God without noting the responsibility that grace produces in us to grow in holiness, then we need to be careful that we are not buying a knockoff grace that is not true grace. Grace is not something that we encounter that gives us a blank check. Grace is something that begins to transform us to be more and more like our holy God. Okay? But let's be honest, for some of you, you might be asking, okay, Stephen, the Lord reigns in holiness, the Lord reigns in justice, I hear you talking about this, but this is hard for me to swallow, because I'm like what you talked about with Habakkuk earlier, where I look around and I see a whole lot of this world that would deny such holiness, and maybe more accurately, I I see a world that lacks in much understandable justice. I had a funny illustration of that this week. I was trying to make a uh, reservation for a, a, a trip a number of months down the road, and it was trying to find rates and places to stay and, and get the best rate and all this. And so, you know, I, I booked a place that I thought looked pretty good, and it said it was totally refundable until a certain date. So I was like, all right, not a problem. If I find a better option, we can get it and get it refunded. And so I booked it, and then like 30 minutes later, I realized I found something better, so I just went to cancel it. And then it said, well, actually, we can cancel uh, part of it, but you have to, the insurance that we made you buy for the place, you have to go through the insurance provider to cancel that. And so I was feeling particularly sassy in my chat conversation with the customer service agent. I said, so you can't cancel, it's not 100% refundable. I actually have to refund it through another person as well. And like, well, we can do our part, but yeah, we can't do all of it. And I said, well, stop saying it's 100% refundable. I ended up getting the full refund after going through the insurance agent, and I probably shouldn't have had the attitude that I did. 
But maybe that's your perspective when you look at this world. You, you see a world that says, okay, we believe that we're morally just. We pursue justice and rightness in our world. We pursue uh, uh, what should be an appropriate understanding of this world. But actually you say, I see a lot of this world that says you need to read the fine print because it's not as it seems. I see a world that talks all the right things. Man, the injustice or the pain or the hurt that is inflicted upon those that are at the hands of the powerful, that really is hard. And I don't know what to make of that. And yes, Stephen, if I'm honest, that raises questions for me in regards to my attitude towards God. If that is where you are, where you say, okay, this holiness and justice, it sounds right, but I don't know what to make of it with my experience of the world, then there is only one place for you or I or any of us to look. And that is at God himself who came and took on flesh. Jesus Christ was the most holy man that could have or would have or ever will exist. He was perfectly sinless, perfectly righteous, holiness embodied, holiness in the flesh. And he was perfectly just in all that he did. In his perfectly holy, perfectly just life, he was marching towards a perfectly entire, not perfectly, entirely unholy, entirely unjust ending in his cross, where he endured far worse than the fine print of, yeah, life is hard sometimes, you got to be careful. He endured the total injustice of those who sought his destruction because they were offended by his holiness. They were offended by his righteousness. They were offended by the fact that he was addressing their injustice. And so this message of the holiness and the justice of God, it will be it will, it, it will be alarming to the point where you look at it and you say, okay, God is out there, but I'm back here, and I don't know how to get there. So it's like I see that there's a problem with me here and God there, but I can't bridge the gap. That is where you will be unless you see Jesus Christ and you see that he is the one who is able to bridge that gap in enduring the injustice that he did on the cross for your sins and for mine. And so what this can lead us to do is when we look at injustice in our world around us, or we even look at our failures to grow in holiness as Christians. feels like my sanctification, my growth in the faith is one step forward, two steps back. One step, when, when am I going to get there? These things that drive us to despair they can drive you to despair and really, really uh, hinder you. Or they can drive you back to your Savior, where with your eyes, with your heart, with your faith set upon Him, you start to begin to understand where to put these things and to know that a Savior who endured this injustice will one day return. He reigns now, and He will one day return and reign perfectly over His creation. Then that gives you hope for beginning to understand this world full of awful fine print. So God reigns over us. And this begins to help us to understand how to trans transition this now from, be, from His holiness and His justice to what do we do about it. And 
the next thing we see in verses 6 and 7 is not only that God reigns, but God is knowable. God is knowable. Maybe you entered this room today knowing that God reigns. But you say, okay, what do I do with that? Look at verse 6. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel was also those among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. You have Moses, Aaron, and Samuel here. Three servants of the Lord who these readers of their Old Testaments would have known. They understood the holiness of God. They understood God who was set apart, who reigns in justice and might. And look at what this says. They called upon His name, they called to the Lord, and He answered them. Now I'm going to say something that is, is, is almost shocking. But it's what verse 6 says. I don't know what to do with it other than, than say it. I'll try to give some explanation for it. But do you want your prayers answered? Do you want your Christian life, your, 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 your attempts to grow in the faith, do you, do you want those? Do you, do you want to have traction? Are you tired of spinning your wheels? Verse 6 seems to indicate you'll have traction when you pursue holiness and justice. Do you see that? Moses and Aaron, they were among his priests. Samuel, they called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. Why? Verse 7, in the pillar of the cloud he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute he gave them. You want your prayers answered? You want this Christianity thing to make sense? Seek to keep his testimonies. Seek to keep the word that he has given to us. And it will make sense. There's a scene from the late 80s movie, The Burbs. It's a Tom Hanks one, like before Tom Hanks was Tom Hanks. It's one of my favorite movies. I have no reason, no understanding of why. But it's this, Tom Hanks plays a typical suburbanite guy who he and some of his other neighbors, they're really suspicious of a new family that's moved in on the block. And they don't know, I'm not going to give any details, they're children that could hear this. They don't know if they're just, if they're just kind of odd or if they're like, hey, we need to get the authorities involved. This is very bad, odd. Uh, and so uh, there's a point where eventually, like, like all, the, all the husbands are convinced that something's really off with the new neighbors and their wives are trying to speak common sense into them. So they say, hey, let's just go over and introduce ourselves and I'm sure we'll get to know them in five minutes and everything will be fine. So they introduce themselves. They go into their home. They're, they're, they're having refreshments. They're talking and there's a scene where one of the characters in it, in the home, is he's looking at a painting that this family has. Uh, it's not even on a wall. It's like on an easel. And he's looking at it, and he's like looking at it, like turning his head, look, like, like, like he, he's picking it up, turning it around. Doesn't know what angle to look at it for the painting to make sense. And eventually the owner of the painting comes and he turns it upside down and he looks at it and he's like, oh, okay, that, that, that makes sense. And, and what it actually is, is it's a very strange 
uh, angle of looking at an operating room in a hospital, and that kind of makes more sense if you get to know the movie, but you might feel like your Christian faith is where you're looking at that painting, and you, you know that Christ is Lord, you know that Christ died for your sins, you have the basic hallmarks, the foundations of the Christian faith, but so much of it does not just, it, it, it seems like your feet are spinning and it seems like you can't make sense of the painting that you're looking at of what the, the Christian life ought to look, at, look like. And what Psalm 99 holds out before us is, you want to start to grow? You'd be reminded that the Lord reigns in holiness and justice. And then you'd be reminded that we have the opportunity and the responsibility to grow in light of that. And he's a God who does not reign in a manner where he gives us a variety of options. And it's like an a la carte where we pick what we want to pick and we decline what we want to decline. No, he says, no, I take you to be mine. And I take you to be mine and I promise to give you life in me. But what you have to understand is, like I said earlier, this grace that comes to you, it must transform you. You do not choose what you want. You submit yourself entirely under my authority. I give you new life and I will make you whole. I will make you complete. I will give you myself, and in me you will have life everlasting. Whether it's God, whether it's yourself, whether it's the world, whether it's the future, these will all only make sense through this lens of a God who reigns over us. And why do we need to hear this? Let's do a little thought experiment. Because when we look out and we see evil in the world, we say, God is just, God will handle that. They'll get theirs, if not in this life, in the life to come. But when we talk about God's justice in our life, we step back and we almost have to wonder, I don't know if I trust God to dispense that rightly. He might be a little too hard on me. Does he know the circumstances that I was working with here? We start to make the excuses, but God says, no, I get you, I get all of you. So God reigns. God is knowable. And lastly, verses 8 and 9 show us that God is to be worshipped. God is to be worshipped. Look at verse 8. Oh, Lord, our God, you answered them. It's like the psalmist wants us to hear this. He says it in verse 6. He answered them. Verse 8. Oh, Lord, our God, you answered them. You are a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. That is interesting. You see the path to worship here through seeing God rightly, through knowing him by the gospel. And God avenged their wrongdoings. You see what this is revealing? God forgives his people of their sins, yet he refuses to leave them where they are. He is in the business, dear Christian. And perhaps this is one reason why the, if you're struggling with the Christian life, not having traction, not making sense, perhaps this is one reason why it's so, you still feel like you wrestle with this sin in your heart, this rebellion against God, this refusal to trust Him, and this refusal to, to align yourself with His Word in ways in which it, it, it's tough. And you say, am I really a Christian? Am I really, am I, am I really growing in the faith? 
Well, actually, maybe you're an exhibit of verse 8. Or that, 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 that feeling of how far you have to go is God's grace in showing you that, yes, you belong to Him. And yeah, you've got a long way to go, but He's saying, I'm going to get you there. I'm going to get you there. And what is our confidence that He's going to get us there? Well, it says that He avenges these wrongdoings. So He looks upon our sin and He has addressed them in the cross of Christ where the perfect justice of God has been meted out upon the perfect, holy Son of God to atone for your sin and for mine. And so, the corrective grace of God that is at work in us, growing us in that indirect road in holiness, it is secured for you and for me in the blood of Christ. You sit there and think, I, I, Stephen, you've got to understand what, what God's working with here. I am not a masterpiece. I look around and, and like, if it was old school, you know, picking teams for, uh, 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 okay, who's going to be on the Christian team and who, who wants this one, who wants this, you, you know, like, remember back schoolyard pick, like, all right, I'll take that guy, I'll take that guy, I'll take that girl, I'll take that girl, I'll take that girl, I'll take that guy, all that, and like, then it's like the last one's picked. You got to understand, Stephen, if we were picking teams, I, I would be the last one. They'd look around and say, ah, uh, you just wait, we'll play another game later. He says, no, you don't have to worry. Because my work in you is accomplished by my power through you. Not by your resolve. In fact, you having these things that need correcting, that need continual refining, need continual sanctification, and your awareness of that, that's where I do my work. That is where I do my work. And the one who sees my holiness and is undone not the one who sees my holiness and says, what's the big deal? So he looks at us, and he looks at us by the gospel, and he compels us, verse 9, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord is holy. What is God's will for your life? to see Him, to know Him, to worship Him. How do you live in light of this today? Never believe the, God, the lie that God is not interested in your life. Verses 6 to 9 show us this. Never believe the lie that God is not interested in your life. Secondly, never believe that He is not working in you towards a purpose. You might wonder what he is doing. You might not have the answers that you desire. But he is at work. One of my favorite quotes from John Piper. God is doing 10,000 things in your life and you might be aware of three of them. Come to know this God who operates not according to what we demand of Him, but who invites us to come and behold Him in His holiness and then begins to transform us. Never believe that He is not working towards you. Man, that helps the monotony. That helps the monotony of just the, the over and over and over again effect of just life just spinning, spinning, spinning on 
And God invites you not to, not to feel like you have to find your all in yourself, but to find that you're all in Him who reigns. So never believe the lie that He is uninterested in you. Never believe the lie that He is not working His purposes in you. And dear Christian, never believe that He is powerless in an unjust world. He is building His people for the glory of His name as a testimony of His greatness and His goodness and His might. May holiness and justice begin to be exalted in His church. May God in His might who reigns over us receive the worship of His people and you will find as we worship Him we are transformed and we are transformed in the best way imaginable because we see him for all that he is and we are see ourselves and we are able to lay aside the burdens that would tell us that we have to be anything apart from worshipers of him why do you worship why do you worship May I suggest to you that God is holy, that God is perfectly just, that He reigns today and will reign over us for an eternity of tomorrows. That is one of many reasons, but it is a paramount reason for us to worship. Brothers and sisters, the Lord reigns in holiness and justice, and He is worthy of all of our worship.